That uh, puts us into the Gospel of Mark. We've been moving through uh, the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to go through it a clip, quicker clip now than that we've uh, set some important foundations for what uh, the Gospel of Mark is about. And uh, in chapters 2 and 3 of this Gospel, you are uh, reading about the, the collision of two kingdoms. Which is the arrival of Jesus and His kingdom that He is proclaiming and what He is doing against Satan and His realm and His kingdom. This, this spot in Mark 3 at verses 6 and 7 is a turning point in the book. We saw last week chapter 2 as it moved into the beginning of chapter 3. It was a picture of what the religious leaders of Israel are doing in their response to Jesus. Jesus is healing. He is casting out unclean spirits. He is working miracles. And rather than seeing the authority of Jesus, seeing Him for who He is, who is bringing the kingdom of God, who is ushering in this new era and new order and new system, who is overthrowing enemies and bringing healing and hope to to the people, we've seen that they have rejected Jesus. In fact, chapter 3 and verse 6 ends with that now the leaders, these Pharisees, are plotting and taking counsel to destroy Jesus. And with the leaders of Israel then saying, we are rejecting Jesus, we are going to attempt to destroy Him, we will not accept His authority, we will not follow Him, it leaves a hanging question that Mark wants to answer in this chapter. So who then is going to follow Jesus? If the ones that He's come to have rejected Him, if He has come to His own and they are not receiving Him, and the leaders are now going to try to kill Him rather than accept Him and His message that He is proclaiming and observe His kingship, then who is going to be a follower of Him? Who is going to belong to Him? And notice how that contrast plays out in verse 7 of Mark chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that He was doing, they came to Him. And He told His disciples to have a boat ready for Him because of the crowd, lest they crush Him. For He had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around Him to touch Him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And He strictly ordered them not to make Him known. Let's start with that first paragraph, and we're just going to move our way through this chapter. And you're going to see in Mark's Gospel that the accounts that he gives are not for us to look at in isolation, but are connected together to point out a, a, a critical theme that he wants us to understand. And so with this beginning point, you are seeing the division. The leaders are rejecting Jesus, but notice the crowds are increasing. More and more crowds are coming to follow Jesus. In fact, you'll notice the description of all the regions now. We started with it being in the surrounding regions of Galilee. And now we've reached to Judea and Jerusalem 
and Idumea, that's ancient Edom, which is to the south of there, and Tyre and Sidon, which is to the northwest of there. And just imagine what's going on here is that his name is being spread, what he's doing is being spread, and huge crowds are coming to follow him. They're coming to listen to him. And the crowd is so great, the crowd is so crushing, that Jesus says there has to get a boat so that he can push it off into the sea just to touch so that he can speak to them because they're all trying to touch him. We understand why. So we've seen earlier in Mark's gospel because there's the understanding that they're going to be healed if they do. And so you can just imagine a crushing group of people all trying to get to him, all trying to touch him. And it says then that they push off in the boat a little bit there so that he can preach to them and heal them of their diseases. Verse 11, listen to the unclean spirits. When the unclean spirits see him, they fall down before him and cry out, You are the Son of God. You just have to try to visualize that scene is notice everything is accepting the authority of Jesus. We know who you are. And just the awareness of Jesus is causing unclean spirits to fall to the ground and proclaim, this is the Son of God. This is the one. Huge crowds from all over the regions and south of the Holy Land, if you will, and even west of outside of what we would call that area of where God's people were, the traditional Israel, are all coming into Galilee. They're all coming to see Jesus. And the prior verse said, but the religious leaders don't want any part of this. And what they're doing is they're going to try to destroy him. They do not see who Jesus is, but the crowds do. Which leads to this monumental imagery in verse 13. And he went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, as he also named whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowds gathered again so they could not even eat. Notice this monumental shift. So here are all the crowds coming and there's a rejection from the leaders of Israel, but the people and the crowds are coming and coming. And do you see the imagery that Mark portrays? That Jesus goes up on a mountain, calls whom he desires, and then appoints 12. You have Jesus forming the new nation of Israel at this moment. You have Jesus reenacting the whole Sinai scene. You have the new Moses imagery on board. After coming out of Egypt and coming to Mount Sinai, it is out Mount Sinai that Israel is essentially formed. 
Moses goes up on the mountain, receives the law, declares it to the people. This is what makes you my people. And notice that Jesus now does the same thing. He goes up on the mountain and he calls whom he desires. And he'll express what that looks like in a moment. But I want you to see the idea that's given here is that he calls 12. And have you ever wondered why it wasn't 10 apostles or 13 apostles or 42 apostles or four apostles, but 12 apostles? And there are 12 because it is the imagery of Israel. Just as it is the 12 sons of Jacob that are the formation of Israel that is crystallized at Mount Sinai. So now you have Jesus going up a mountain and here he appoints 12. And the imagery is pushed further for us in verses 13 and 14 that he appoints the 12. And what are they to have? They have the authority to preach this gospel, to proclaim this kingdom. And they have the authority to cast out unclean spirits. They're his representatives. It's going to be through these 12 that you are going to now belong to this new Israel. Belong to Jesus. Belong to this kingdom. And it's all being set up in this imagery of reenacting what occurred before in the days of Moses. This is now the new kingdom being established. And any who will listen to Jesus and his apostles are going to be the ones who belong. Now watch how that shifts. Because look at when verse 20, you have him coming and all the crowds are gathering and no one can even eat. Not to, can you imagine it being that crowded? You, you can't even eat. You can't even get your arm into the bowl because there are so many people thronging around Jesus and these 12. The crowds are crushing him. And look, look at verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying he's out of his mind. Does that surprise you? That's not what you expected that next verse to say. You say, now when Jesus' family heard it, they went to Jesus and said, let's go. Let's proclaim the kingdom of God. Let's do this. Notice what's happening with Jesus' family. It says they've come to seize him. They're coming to Jesus and saying, got to come with us this is madness what's going on all these people are crushing you and thronging around you You can't even eat this is this is out of control jesus jesus come with us let's go home you know let's put an end to this madness let's put an end to this craziness let's let's settle all this down a little bit pretty surprising response that you have although it is interesting the gospels do not hide that jesus siblings do not believe in him This is not the first time that you get in the gospel accounts the idea that his brothers and sisters, they're not on board with him at all. They don't believe John 7 is the strongest. You really are who you say you are. Why don't you go to Jerusalem and proclaim it yourself and go show them who you are? They didn't buy in. And John specifically says, for they did not believe him. (laughs) And that's what's happening right here. Here they come. Our brother's crazy. He's completely out of his mind. I don't know what this nonsense is. It's all going on, but you got to come with us, Jesus. I think that's a useful thing to observe. Can I just stop here for a minute and ask you, have you ever had a family member think you're crazy for following Jesus? (laughs) 
That's what you have going on right here. Is Here's the family going, they're saying of Jesus, He's crazy. Jesus knows what you're going through. People looking at you going, this doesn't make any sense. Why are you following after Him? Why would you listen to what He has to say? You're not alone in making that decision. Here's Jesus having to be all by Himself from His own family. His own family is looking at Him and going, no, He's crazy. We've got to get, get Him before it's too late. Oh, wow. So many people do have to make that decision. And Jesus understands that decision of even your family rejecting you and not believing in what you are doing. And I want you to see it's not only his family that thinks he's crazy. Look at verse 30, uh, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So you have your family saying you're nuts. And the religious leaders, if you, whenever you read scribes, I want you to think about these are the teachers of the, the law of Moses. They were the ones who not only copied the law, but were the ones who were considered an authority of teaching the law to other people. They know the law of Moses. Uh, some of the translations will even say lawyers. Well, that works as long as you don't think of like our lawyers. That's not it at all either. It's the idea of they know the law of Moses. And so what are they saying about Jesus? Well, he's nuts too. He, it says there in verse 22, is possessed by Beelzebub, and he casts out demons by the prince of demons. I want you just to stop and consider that for a moment. Do you notice that there is nobody who is denying what Jesus is doing? Nobody is saying, you know what, this, he's not really healing people. He's not really casting out demons. He's not dealing with the sick and carrying them. He's not cleansing. He's not doing any of those things. Nobody is approaching Jesus in that way and saying, what you're doing is not legitimate or real. What they're saying is, well, he must be either crazy or he must be doing it by the power of Satan and the prince of demons. And I want to underscore that idea for a minute. Because sometimes I think we have the tendency to believe that if God would just do something so amazing, so jaw-dropping, so staggering, you know, the whole world would just believe. We have this idea that if we could just have enough proofs if we could just defend with apologetics like crazy and just know it inside and out and have every argument perfectly laid out, we would just have everybody go. If we could just find the Ark of the Covenant, if we could just find Noah's Ark, if we could just find the old cross, if we could just find fill-in-the-blank relic, artifacts, archaeological big exciting thing that would change everything and we were saying it would change nothing it would change absolutely nothing hundreds of people are being healed unclean spirits are bowing down and saying you are the son of God and people are going well he's crazy <laughs> well, you know, it must be by the power of Satan. 
There's no amount of proofs that are going to work. We again have it in our head like that we have there in Luke 16. When you have in that account, well, you know, if someone were to rise from the dead, that would certainly convince. And if you remember, Abraham goes, no, it wouldn't matter. If someone rose from the dead, that wouldn't convince. And we have two proofs of that. Lazarus rises from the dead by the power of Jesus. And what did they all do? They all bowed down and said, wow, you really are the son of God. No, they tried time to kill Lazarus, remember? They don't go, wow, that's amazing. He just walked out of the tomb. They all just tried to kill him. And Jesus himself raises from the dead. Which the apostles go around saying, you all saw that. You all saw that. You all know he was in the tomb and you know he's not there anymore. Faith doesn't come from miracles. Faith doesn't come from proofs. Faith doesn't come from an awesome defense of apologetics inside and out. You know, you have Josh McDowell's book memorized or Case for Christ memorized or something like that. If you can just wing them with it, it's not going to change anything. That's what's being coming out right here in this text. These people are saying the most ridiculous argument that you could possibly come up with. What Jesus is doing is he's using the power of Satan against Satan. Brilliant argument. (laughs) That makes a whole lot of sense. Here's Satan trying to rule over people and he's got unclean spirits and demons and all that and here's Jesus casting them out. The most logical conclusion that you would possibly draw from that is that, well, Jesus must belong to Satan because he's casting out Satan's demons. What? It doesn't make, that's the most illogical thing you could say. Which is what Jesus argues in verse 23. And he called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Essentially, are you insane? That's the, the, the craziest thing you could possibly say. To say that they're on the same team. Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. And now notice the imagery that Jesus gives. Let me explain to you what's going on. Verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. They're saying, you're doing it by the power of Satan. Jesus goes... If I'm casting out demons and doing this to Satan, there is only one logical conclusion. I have bound Satan and I have authority over him. I can do whatever I want to him. And so I'm coming into his realm and I'm casting out demons and that's so you can know who I am. I have power over him. He has no power over me. Now here's what makes this phenomenal look at the picture that's being given to us in this scene here is Jesus with this authority and he is saying I have come in 
to this realm with all of this power, with all of this might, with all of my rule and all my authority over Satan. And I am accomplishing this critical victory over him. My kingdom is wiping out his kingdom. And notice what that means in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. What they were supposed to see is that the healings, the casting out of unclean spirits, the miracles was proving something powerful. Jesus is greater than Satan. He is greater than Satan's power. He has come to set people free. He has come to heal them of their spiritual infirmities. He has come to rescue them. And He has bound the strong man, put him aside, plundering his house, plundering his goods. And what is the big implication for us? All the sins that people commit will be forgiven. That's the power of what Jesus has come to do. Don't miss the whole point of the divided house that cannot stand. Here's the therefore. That means He's greater than Satan. He's taken Satan's authority away. He has bound him up. He has set you free. You are not enslaved to sin. And the sins that anyone commits can be forgiven by Him. And then I love, don't forget, and even the slanders and blasphemes they utter. Nothing's off the table. He's come to forgive. He's come to rescue. He's come to save. That's why He's come. And that's what He's doing in the miracles, what He's doing in the healing, what He's doing in casting out demons, is you would see His power over that realm. He's dominating it. He's wiping it out. Why? Not so that people would go, wow, that's really cool. So they would see He has power to forgive every sin. Now unfortunately, what happens to us is we get stuck on verse 29 (laughs) and not soak in verse 28. Verse 29, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. You just took away all my assurance. (laughs) right? So we read that and go, Oh no, have I committed this unforgivable sin? Have I done something that I cannot be forgiven of and I cannot enjoy that? And I want us just to slow down, read all of it, Why was this happening? Notice what it is. Verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. You're guilty of eternal sin. Now what does that look like? Look at verse 30. Never stop reading. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. Why were they not going to be able to be forgiven? Because they were attributing the power of God that was on display in Christ as evil and belonging to Satan. That's why. 
don't nullify verse 28. It doesn't say, and some of your sins will be forgiven. It says all of them. (laughs) He's come to rescue and has bound Satan and all sins will be forgiven. Well, who's not going to enjoy that? Those who see the authority and the power of Jesus not being good, not being from God, but instead being a work of Satan. He does it by an unclean spirit. That's what verse 30 gives us. The picture then is very simple. It is the refusing of Jesus' authority, the refusing of His power, the refusing of understanding who He is, is when you won't be forgiven. Please think for a moment. Can you find an instance of anybody in the Scriptures who has a genuine, true heart's desire to, for forgiveness from God and God says, no. <laughs> no. That never happens. There is nobody who's on their knees begging God for forgiveness and God goes, you know what, that's just too bad. You committed that one sin. I got gotcha. you. That's not it. This, this text should never be painted that way. Like, okay, it's all good except this one. The big deal is if you don't accept the authority of Jesus, if you don't grasp who He is, if you don't see what He's come to do, of course you'll never be forgiven. That's the very problem with the leaders. How could it be possible that you would be in the synagogue and here is a man with a withered hand and he says, stretch out your hand. He stretches out his hand, it's made whole, and their first reaction is, let's kill him. Are they going to be forgiven? Obviously not. Because they don't see who Jesus is. They do not accept His authority. They do not accept His power. They do not understand what He's come to do. They do not see Him as the rescuer of all people. They do not see Him as the Savior of the world. They see Him as a problem. And they see Him as such a, as a problem that they make the most ridiculous defense of what Jesus is doing. Well, Satan's casting out demons by the power of Satan. You're used to this by now, right? People are going to say ridiculous things to deny the existence of God and the power of Jesus Christ. And it's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of your ability to convince that you don't have the right words or you can't say the right things or whatever you might have come to your mind of, well, it's all me and I just didn't do it right. It has nothing to do with you. They are not seeing and understanding and experiencing who God is. Because in the face of miracles, they say, whatever. And that's so intense that here's Jesus' own family even saying, Jesus, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. Come with us. That's how intense that gets. I always try to visualize that household. I've got to think Mary stood on her head every day telling those boys, um, it was a miracle. <laughs> A virgin birth, that was a miracle. It was a miracle. It was a miracle. I mean, she had every argument to give them. You think there's not undeniable proof? She's telling it to them. 
You know, Joseph, yep, it was a miracle. It wasn't me. And the boys go, not going to listen. That's who's not in the kingdom. Those who refuse the authority of God, who will not understand who God is and submit their will to him. Final picture, verse 31. Who is then in the family? Who will follow Jesus? Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. You might have a footnote that says brothers were like verse 31 mother and his brothers came can be brothers and sisters. And you heard me intentionally say sisters, because I think that's exactly it. It doesn't make a lot of sense at the very end to say, who's my my mother and brothers or you're my mother, brother and sisters. Well, who just came mother, brothers and sisters? That's why they're there. And, And what an amazing thing that Jesus says right there. Here they come to him again and they're calling him. Please note in verse 31, they're not calling to him like, you know, hey, it's dinner time. You know, want to come. it's not what's happening. This is the same thing that just happened earlier. It is the calling away. You need to stop this. Come on. Time to stop. Come on. Let's go. Not for today. Jesus needs a break. Too many crowds. And notice Jesus responds is this establishment of a new family. It's an amazing statement. When the crowd is sitting around him, and here is, is this, they tell him, your, your mother and your, your, your family are all outside seeking you. And he, verse 34, just picture this. And looking about at those who sat around him, he looks at them all and says, You're my mother and my brothers and my sisters. You're my family. All of you are my family. You're everything. Here is Jesus defining this new Israel. He's called his 12. Here is the new Israel. Here is this new people of God, this kingdom, this new family. And who are the ones who belong? And it's not defined by blood. It's not defined by ethnic origin. It's not defined by being Israel as tying yourself to Abraham. That's not the way it would be this time. It is now defined by their common allegiance to the kingdom of God. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to his family. And just looks at that crowd, all of those people, this pressing crowd. You belong to me. You're my family. And what an impressive declaration to impress upon them. That he does not allow his family to take priority over this new family he's formed. You're my family. And he's not rejecting his own family. But he's trying to get everybody to understand what he's just created here. This is the new family of God. And its ties and its strength and its bonds 
should be as strong, yes, stronger than what our family commitments and bonds would be. That it would be stronger than what flesh and blood could have. We tie these these three stories then together and see this big, beautiful picture. Here's Jesus. Mark wants you to see. He's come to heal. He's come to set people free. He's come to rescue. And what you have is the formal Israel has rejected Jesus. They are plotting to kill him. They're saying he has a demon. They say he does it by the power of Beelzebul and and the prince of demons. But he's come and he's creating a new Israel. He's creating a new family. And that's only made possible because he has the power to bind Satan. Because he has bound him up, taken control over him, put his authority aside so that he has the power and the ability to forgive people all their sins. And it is only the people who reject that authority who will not give their lives to Jesus, who will not bend the knee before him. They are the ones who miss out. But for those, as verse 35 says, who do the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. There is not a sin that you cannot be forgiven of if you are willing to come to Jesus and submit your life to him. And put His authority over you. That's what this text is portraying. If you will submit to Jesus. If you will follow Him. If you will give your life to Him. He puts you in His family. He calls you His brother and sister. And says you belong to Him. Do you see why Mark has led up to this beautiful picture of walking up to people and saying, Hey, follow me. And they go, done. Leaving tax booths, we're leaving fishing boats, we're leaving everything, let's go. Look at what we have. Look at what Jesus has come to give. You can belong to the family of God. Give everything up and follow Him. That is what Jesus is looking for. And let me just add this one final conclusion then. That Jesus has come to build this family... And we need to see each other in that light. For Jesus to be able to look at those who are following him and say to them, you're my family. You're my mother. You're my brother. You're my sister. It should change everything about how we look at one another. That what we have in this room This is not an organization. This is not a membership. This is not a club. This is not, you know, Sam's Club, pay your dues and get a special card and get way too much food. You know, so often the church seems to be pictured as clubs, as hobbies, as secondary, as, you know, whatever we want it to be. And I want you to hear what Jesus is doing is saying, I've come to make you family. 
I want you to be intertwined together. I want you to be family together, to see each other in that light, that we would be a family who is so tightly bound together, that has such a relationship together, that if the question was to be asked, who is my family? You'd think of this family. That's us. We're family. We are the family of Christ. And we have a strong bond together that will not be broken. That we'd be joined together like that to such a degree, so closely connected together like that. That's the family Jesus has come to build. It's not about come sit in the pew, here you are for an hour, good for you. This is a family that you're a part of. This is what Jesus has created for us, to be joined together in that way. And that's what leaves the question then. So who's going to follow Jesus? Who's going to see him for who he is? Who wants to enjoy the benefits of all your sins being forgiven? Who wants to enjoy belonging to a family in Christ? A family that is so caring for one another because of the bonds that we have of our common faith. You might lose your physical family. They might say you're crazy. They might want want any part of you because of the decision you're making. But Jesus made a new family. And you can belong to that family. And it's a family that where you get to enjoy forgiveness of sins from God. And a family that should be much stronger than any bonds we could have with anybody else on earth. We hope you'll make the decision today to follow Jesus. Won't you come now while we stand?